Welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, president of the Murthy Law Firm. I have with me today two of our amazing and brilliant attorneys at the Murthy Law Firm, Alyssa Klein, supervising attorney in the H-1B department, and Kevin Andrews in our special projects department, who focuses on green card and other complex issues. Our topic today is AC21 analysis and discussion. And although most of you will be familiar with what AC21 stands for, it really means the American Competitiveness in the 21st Century Act, or AC21, which was passed and signed into law back in October 2000, over 12 years ago, uh, by President Clinton, I guess, right before he uh, left office. Really, when we have a forward movement in the visa bulletin as happened earlier in 2012, it allowed many potential green card applicants to file the I-485 adjustment of status application. But then, since then, we've had retrogression for several months, which has caused the applications to just sit in the queue for several months or longer, and some applicants are coming up or have recently been surpassed the 180-day mark that makes the person eligible for the benefits that are available under the AC21 portability provisions. So, Kevin, what are some of the benefits that are available for an employer where the employee has a pending I-485 adjustment of status application? Uh, Yeah, thank you, Sheila. Um, You know, employers uh, potentially have some opportunities here to, uh, you know, really attract talent because of AC-21 law. So I think what today we'll be talking about, uh, we'll start off talking about AC-21 and how it impacts uh, potential green card cases. But then I guess we'll also talk about um, how AC-21 law affects H-1B filings as well. So employers really... uh, again, can hire potentially workers who have existing green card cases with other companies without having to go through the whole process of doing the labor certification, the I-140 filing, you know, uh, arguing or or showing that the company meets the ability to pay financial uh, uh, criteria for the I-140 petition. Instead, they could, uh, an employer could potentially just take over the green card case from a uh, an employee that had a green card case with another uh, employer. So this is a good option for employers with, because it's cost-effective, it's efficient, um, and it can potentially attract some you know uh, talent out there. And what is this option of the upgrading of the case that we hear about? Sure. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of people filed EB3 cases. So uh, just real briefly, EB3 and EB2 are the main categories uh, that we deal with with um, highly skilled workers. But the EB2 category is for people who have advanced degrees. And typically that category... Or a bachelor's plus five years. A bachelor's plus five years is uh, defined as an advanced degree in in the regulation as well. That's right. And um, the EB2 cases do typically move a lot faster than the EB3 cases. So in a lot of situations, people with long-delayed EB3 cases become eligible for EB2 cases, maybe by getting an advanced degree, a master's degree. Um, and then ask their employer to file what's called an upgrade case. File the EB-2 case for me so that I can upgrade my existing EB-3 to an EB-2. And in in a lot of those cases, uh, the 45 applicant can retain the earlier priority date, which really puts them to the front of the line, um, you know, waiting for that green card. Absolutely. And so I guess even though most people are pretty aware of the eligibility criteria, 
Kevin, what are the different eligibility criteria to, to be able to take advantage of the AC21 portability, green card portability provisions? Sure. You know, what's interesting with AC21 is that, uh, you know, it's been, as you mentioned, over 12 years or about 12 years, and we still have no regulations on the law. So really all we have is what the law says and some memos uh, published by USCIS over the years and legacy INS. Uh, but the, f- the three core eligibility criteria are as follows. Uh, the applicant, the, the employee needs to have an I-45 application that has been pending at least 180 days or more, number one. Number two, the beneficiary also needs to have an approved and valid I-140 petition. Valid means that it was approvable when it was filed, and we'll discuss some of those nuances a little bit later. And then the third and final requirement is that the new job is in a same or similar occupational classification as the job that the person was originally sponsored for. So if you meet these three criteria, you potentially have a situation, uh, an employer potentially has a situation where they can receive that employee without having to go through the filing of a new green card case, but still retain them for permanent employment. Okay. So now let's briefly discuss a few of the scenarios that could affect the use of AC21. Um, Kevin, I'll come back to you again. So what if the prior green card sponsoring employer obtains a notice of intent to revoke on the previously approved I-140 petition and because the employee has, of course, taken advantage of AC21 portability benefits and left that employment, um, the employer says, of course, why would I hire a lawyer and spend time or money and effort and energy responding to it? How does that impact uh, that employee and the new employer who is now continuing the process for the employee? Right. So employers, savvy employers who out there are going to use AC21 as a, as a cost-effective and quick option to attract talent, uh, need to be aware of some of these things. So as you mentioned, uh, if a notice of intent to revoke an, old, an I-140 filed by an old employer, the previous employer, is not responded to, it could result in the revocation of that I-140 petition by USCIS. And this is a complicated, uh, complex situation because, as you mentioned, those old employers, they really don't have an incentive uh, to answer the, bene- the I-140 notice of intent to revoke if they have no intention of having that particular worker come back. Um, so in a situation where the, the I-140 is revoked, regardless if it happens before or after the 180 days where the 45 has been pending, it will result in uh, not allowing use of AC-21 portability. Now, what we've seen in some situations is, you know, first the I-140 would be revoked, and then subsequently at some point in time, the uh, the pending 485 would be denied, saying you have no underlying I-140, therefore we're denying your I-485 application. Um, but there's uh, there's some due process implications there. The regulations require that I-45 applicants are made aware of any derogatory information about their case and be given an opportunity to rebut that derogatory information. So it's kind of, um, you know, it, it's, a uni- it's a weird thing here because you have the I-140 petition that belongs to the company, the I-45 application that it belongs to the worker, the foreign national. Um, so but an argument can be made that, uh, you know, in the filing of a 45, if it were denied, an argument can be made that, you know, this is derogatory information that due process requires that this derogatory information be made known to the I-45 applicant. And, you know, that kind of strategy, the underlying I-140 is still uh, revoked. So that kind of strategy might just be used to buy some time to make sure that, that this person can preserve some of their, their H-1B time, you know, stay here without any disruption in their in their current work. So that's a very complicated situation we see often. Yeah, we see it all the time, though. Unfortunately, we do get these prior employers who revoked it, and then USCIS confirms the revocation, and then USCIS issues a notice of intention to deny or de- revocation on the 485, 
And we usually, ch- multi-law firm, the multi-law firm, we challenge it. And we usually end up, at least as uh, Kevin mentioned, buying time or even being able to get the I-485 reaffirmed and approved on the basis that uh, really AC-21 had already taken effect. And it kind of ties in with the next question which we had, which is what if the original sponsoring employer withdraws the I-140 petition? Uh, and it's not that different because either they withdraw it, they don't respond to an RFE, you know, different scenarios. Right, yeah. Well, uh when the employer withdraws the I-140 petition, uh, if the withdrawal happens after the 45 has been pending 180 days, there's still a, a potential use. Uh, a, the, the employee might still be able to use AC-21 to move to a different company. Um, this is a question we do often get a lot because uh, employees will ask, you know, like, well, if the I-140 is revoked, what do I do? And just to take a step back here, because we've talked about both both of them, there are two forms, two ways to revoke an I-140. One is if USCIS revokes it through the issuance of a notice of intent to revoke, uh, which we just talked about. But technically, when the original employee employer decides to withdraw the I-140, that's technically a revocation, but it's just a procedural one. So, And the company might do this because they might have to show ability to pay for a lot of other I-140 petitions. Perhaps they've received an RFE on this issue. And in order to show ability to pay for the people they do intend to pay at some point, they would need to withdraw those petitions that they no longer have an intention of uh, you know, employing that particular worker. So to answer your question, if what if the original sponsor withdraws that I-140? If the withdrawal happens when the 45 is pending less than 180 days, unfortunately, there's no AC-21 benefit there. But if that withdrawal happens after the 180 days passes, after the 45 has been pending 180 days, then there's still potential use of AC-21 in that situation. Okay. And then, uh, Kevin, what if the original employer has been found guilty, for example, of fraud in the green card process or fraud in its operations or what have you? Yeah, this is an interesting uh, development, and we're starting to see uh, this issue come up a little bit more frequently with, with USCIS. So we talked before, you know, what if the notice of intent to revoke is issued and, uh, you know, something happens to the underlying I-140? Uh, there's a larger issue, as, as you, uh, you're uh, bringing to our attention here, which is if the original employer is found guilty of, you know, committing some kind of fraud, uh, maybe, you know, this could have been started, this investigation could have been started through the issuance of a notice of intent to revoke or some other kind of investigation. Uh, but if that company is determined not to be complying with some aspect of immigration law, the H-1B program, benching its workers, you know, just not paying the required wage on the else on the labor condition application for the H-1B, and there's a finding on, on that, it could potentially infect or affect all of that company's other cases. So uh, one situation we've seen is a situation where an employee works for, you know, company A, uh, gets five years of experience with company A, uses AC-21 to move to company B, and then company B might also do an upgrade case for them from EB-3 to EB-2. In the course of that upgrade case, maybe the, the requirements are a bachelor's in five years of experience. Well, if that worker is relying on five years of experience gained with a prior employer who's been found guilty of uh, committing fraud or or violating the H-1B program, then what we've seen is uh, USCIS cast doubt on the... uh, whether or not that experience was actually uh, gained with that prior employer. So this can have the effect of not only, uh, you know, a, uh, adversely affecting, you know, the prior case, but also a future case if one were filed. So it's a really, imp- it's really important to know for the, for the employers out there that want to embrace using the AC-21 benefit. Uh, th- these are some things that, some factors to consider. And although they're not commonplace, 
uh, they're happening happening frequently enough that I think that uh, you know we need to bring it to your attention. Yeah, it happens where we at the Murti Law Firm end up getting a lot of the consultations or questions or issues uh, where individuals come and say to us, oh my God, you know, now I'm getting a notice of intent to deny, a notice of intent to revoke from USCIS alleging fraud because I had worked with XYZ employer that's being subjected to some kind of an investigation for fraud or abuse, et cetera. Right. Um, so, and that is a little scary and that does make the case much more complex as Kevin just pointed out. So let's move to Alyssa because AC21 portability has benefits not just from the green card point of view, though that is generally the focus of a lot of people, but the entire H-1B process and the ability to start working with a new employer is possible only for the last 12 years because before that you couldn't start and join and start working with a new employer until and unless the petition was approved for employment. So Alyssa, can you explain what are the uh, ramifications of AC21 on H-1B employers and their eligibility to hire an employee? Right. No, thank you, Sheila. I mean, this is a really great benefit that both employers and employees can take advantage of when you have an H-1B and you also have the green card process going on at the same time. Uh, You know, Historically, you were maxed out at six years of H-1B, and now what AC-21 has done is allowed people to continue to extend their H-1B while you're waiting for your priority date to become available, which, as we've seen with the retrogression, can happen in perhaps for an extended period of time. Um, Now, it is the safest practice to maintain H-1B and, yes, it is an additional cost. We understand from an employer's perspective why make that investment when you can just use EAD based on the pending 485? Well, yes, it is a cost, but it could be even more costly to not maintain the H-1B. Um, If, for example, the 485 is denied and you have an employee that's relying on their EAD for employment authorization, they're going to have to leave the country, wait abroad for a different benefit to come back into the U.S. and work perhaps H-1B, and this can be extensive, uh, an extensive disruption to somebody's employment. Um, so there are a number of bases for extending your H-1B beyond six years, and the first one is uh, it's Section 106C, and essentially, if you have an I-140 petition or a labor certification that has been filed at least 365 days ago, whether it's pending or approved, can be used for one-year H-1B extensions, okay? And you can do that indefinitely as long as the the case has not come to a final denial or adjudication. So perhaps there's a motion or an appeal on an I-140. You may be able to utilize that as well. Now, if your I-140 is approved and you're waiting for your priority date to become current, you can get a three-year H-1B extension and continually renew three years at a time. Um, If your I-140 is approved and your priority date is current, you may very well be able to do a one-year extension, as I said earlier, based on whether or not it was filed more than 365 days ago. Now, if there are some issues meeting that 365-day requirement, you can look into perhaps recapturing any time spent outside of the U.S. Can you use that to get to the 365th day? Or if not, can you use it anyway to get some more H-1B time in the meantime? Um, again, if you're not able to meet any of these criteria, you may be able to switch to a different non-immigrant status, 
let's say your spouse has their own H-1B, maybe you change to H-4, and then when you meet one of the criteria for the seventh year extension, you can then file a change of status back to H-1B. Uh, and the, also a good thing to note is even if you've used six years of your H-1B, you can still go to H-4. So you don't have to worry about that time. That that, that was a really good it. thing that USCIS did about mm -hmm. three or four years ago, I think in 2009, 2008 or 9, uh, where they said... Um, Basically, they decoupled mm -hmm. the H-4 exactly. status from the H-1B because otherwise it was so unfair right. when a spouse was an H-4 status, the person mm -hmm. had to leave or the child who was 21 years of age mm -hmm. who had been an H-4 status was told, sorry, you can't get mm -hmm. your own employer to sponsor H-1 even though you've completed your high school and your college degree from the United right. States. Right. What if... Uh, a lot of times we get this question all the time, um, pretty often where they, they, the question asked is, hey, my employer filed the H-1, I got the extension mm -hmm. for three years, but then a month or two months later after the approval, my I-140 got denied or my, you know, I got an RFE on my previously approved I-140 mm -hmm. that's now mm -hmm. going to get denied. What's the stake on that, uh, Alyssa? Right. Now, I mean, that's an excellent question. And we did get some more clarification from USCIS on this. Um, in a teleconference in 2011, uh, this question came up, and CIS did confirm that you would be able to retain that approval that had already been adjudicated. Uh, you may need to get a different basis if you want another extension, but whatever you've been approved, that one-year or three-year H-1B, that you would retain that. And the fact is that the Murthy law firm was all along taking the position that it's valid because the government has nowhere said it wouldn't be valid. Mm -hmm. So we did it before the government sent a confirmation because we knew that legally they had no basis to deny or challenge that. But to follow up on Alyssa's very useful point, which is for further extensions after that, you would still need your own basis mm -hmm. like the 365-day rule Correct. for the laborer I-140 mm -hmm. or the approved I-140 petition and the priority date not being right. current. Right. Um, so the other question is, can an H-1B exemption, what are the sort of rules for the H-1B exemptions uh, to be cap exempt with respect to an institution of mm -hmm. higher education mm -hmm. and a nonprofit government research organization or related or affiliated mm -hmm nonprofit entity because this does come up from time to time. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, again, this is also included in AC21, um, not, you know, it's it not necessarily um, pertaining to sixth or seventh, seventh plus year extensions, but it is another benefit that AC21 affords, which is if the quota is closed, what are, what are your options? How do you get to be here in, you know, in H-1B? What sort of employment will, will allow you to do that? And like you said, it, this, the annual quota of 65000 plus the master's does not apply to institutions of higher education, related or affiliated nonprofit entities to that institution, uh, nonprofit research organizations that are, and this is key, they're primarily engaged in basic or applied research. So you really have to look at the nature of what that company is doing, um, and then as well as a government research uh, organization. And, you know, again, in 2011, we're getting, um, you know, more feedback from the government on, uh, you know, what exactly it means to qualify under some of these categories. And uh, CIS uh, did say in March of 2011 that it was going to review its policy for permitting cap exemptions. And we're primarily looking at the related or affiliated nonprofit entities to the institution of higher education. Now, 
they did say that they would give deference to employers that had previously uh, been approved under this exemption. Um, however, uh, if you hadn't been, it'd be really important to closely look at that relationship to see if you meet this more, I would say, stringent application of affiliation. Um, there was a G- June 2006 uh, memo which defined affiliated nonprofit entities. Um, now, since 2011, we have not heard anything further on this, so it's best for safe practice to refer back to this definition. And uh, essentially, it does say that a nonprofit entity that is connected or associated with an institution of higher education, and this is key, through shared ownership or control by the same board or federation, operated by an institution of higher education or attached to an institution of higher education as a member, branch, cooperative, or subsidiary, are you know, this is really the key issue here as to what what does this mean, shared ownership or control. And um, and is it true mm-hmm. that until 2010, the USCIS tended to be much more lenient mm-hmm. on the interpretation of the memo on cap-exempt cases filed by hospitals? Correct. Which were affiliated with universities, and correct. now it's no longer as lenient, and they're giving us a hard time? Correct. That is correct, which is why, again, if you, ha- if you are an institution that previously did benefit from it, include some sort of evidence that you've received received an approval under this classification before, either through a copy of the I-129 that indicated your exemption or by providing perhaps the, the case number. Um, so they are giving some deference, but if it's your initial filing under this exemption, yes, they are being more strict. Uh, and it's important that you have all of the documentation to support the position that you do have this necessary affiliation. Um, and again, we have not received further clarification on this from the government. Okay. Um, to t- discuss briefly the section, Immigration and Nationality Act, Section 214N, regarding H-1B portability. Uh, as I briefly alluded to it before, because of AC-21 and its portability provisions, not in the green card context, but in the H-1B non-immigrant context, um, AC-21 does permit the H-1 worker to start work with a new H-1B employer simply upon filing a valid bona fide timely filed petition for a change of employer as long as the beneficiary had been maintaining H-1B status at the time of filing. And of course, some of these, even as I'm explaining the rule, you all know there are exceptions where the person wasn't working with the prior employer before there was a gap in status, there were no paychecks, person was already out of status, and hence portability benefits wouldn't accrue in those situations. Um, and, And the prior law, as we knew, was if a person was previously ever invalid H-1B status or had an H-1B visa, then the person was able to take advantage of the benefits of AC-21 H-1B portability under Section 214N. But now that has changed. Kevin, what do you think is the reason for USCIS issuing a different interpretation or understanding and no longer allowing a person, for example, who's, who was on H-1B, who switched to H-4, who's now switching back to H-1 before the person was cap exempt, was allowed to take advantage, just file the petition and start working. Now they're saying, no, 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 you need to actually get the approval. Right, exactly. Um, well, as you mentioned before, you know, the, the law is pretty clear. The law says uh, in 2, uh, 214N, uh, in that section of the INA, 
it's pretty clear that that as long as you were previously accorded H-1B status, you should be eligible to uh, begin working for a new H-1B employer upon the filing of that H-1B petition. So as you mentioned before, uh, maybe a situation where someone is in H-1B status, uh, maybe their time was starting to run out because their green card case was in a weird situation, and maybe they switched, like Alyssa had mentioned, maybe they switched to uh, H-4 status for a time because they have their spouse was also working on H-1, so they were able to do that and not have to leave. But now the situation is that, you know, they're able to apply for the extension, uh, get back into H-1B status. So the question is, well, can I start working upon the filing of that petition or do I have to wait until it's actually adjudicated to begin work? Um, I think the change here probably happened uh, with sort of the implementation of the E-Verify program, which is the voluntary program, voluntary for many, uh, not federal contractors and and a few others, uh, but the voluntary uh, work and identity authorization program. Uh, that the government, DHS, has, has come out with. What happened was starting in 2010, starting in 2010, E-Verify started issuing, uh, so if somebody is confirmed on the E-Verify system, it's called a confirmation, and then if you're not confirmed, it's a non-confirmation. So the uh, participants in the E-Verify program started getting non-confirmations for people precisely in that situation where they began working upon the filing of an H-1B petition, had previously held H-1B status at some point, but the most recent status held was something other than H-1B. And what the E-Verify program administrators had said is that the uh, USCIS, the Office of Chief Counsel at the USCIS, advised them that this situation isn't permitted. The H-1B portability rule, as it's mentioned in 214N, does not apply to this situation where a non-immigrant was previously in H-1B status at some time in the past, but is not currently in that status um, that's, I think, where the change that happened. That looks like a good lawsuit that's waiting to happen by somebody affected. The problem is m- most of us as employers are busy trying to do our work, whether it's consulting or running insurance companies or running technology companies, and suing the government isn't something that's, you know, can be easily decided because of the time, cost, expense, and practical considerations, but certainly is a violation of the exact terms of the actual law and while the government, for its convenience, is doing this, the fact is, if someone's genuinely affected, I think there's a pretty good case that we could win the suit. Right. That's exactly what we think. We think that you know the language of the law is pretty clear and plain, and uh, you know obvious w- what it means. But I think w- what we think uh, is that you know this E-Verify program is presenting a maybe a technological barrier, and the way they've chose to resolve it is by having this interpretation of 214N. Yeah, convenience does not trump the law, even though it's tempting, I'm sure, for the government. So, Alyssa, what are the risks for an H-1B employer and the H-1B employee in taking advantage of the H-1B portability provisions under the AC-21 law? Right. So there are some risks uh, depending on how you approach this uh, portability. Uh, And, you know, the best practice would be to wait for the new employer's approval to be issued before moving to that new company. Uh, The most aggressive approach uh, where you see more risk is going to be moving to the new employer upon filing of the petition, which could be evidenced by even a FedEx delivery confirmation, which is risky not only because you don't know if it will be approved or not, uh, but also because it could feasibly even be rejected and not even accepted for processing, uh, not giving you any employment authorization to hire an employee uh, at that period of time. So there's that risk, which is it doesn't even get accepted for processing. Um, And 
another situation, like I said, is if it is accepted for processing, but then uh, subsequently denied. If the if your H-1 employee comes to work for the new company uh, upon filing and the case is denied, uh, then that you have to end employment with, with that individual, and they may have to uh, directly leave the U.S. as they would possibly be out of status. Um, now, maybe they could return to their prior employer, uh, but only if you know the petition remained valid, it wasn't expired, and the company didn't didn't withdraw it. Um, but if you're that new employer, um, you're looking at at a disruption in, in the employment at that time and possibly refiling. The, another H-1B case. And what about the issue of bridging? So when I'm with employer A, for example, I have an approval. Now I want to go to B. I start working with B. Then I go to C. It's very frustrating for the employers and very time consuming and expensive to file multiple petitions. But unfortunately, H-1B employees tend to do that from time to time or fairly mm-hmm. often in some cases. How does it affect the employer? How does it affect the employee? What happens to employment authorization? And I know there's some kind of a Polodny memo from USCIS on bridging status. Mm-hmm. Can you just briefly explain some of that, Alyssa? Yeah, absolutely. And this is, you know, I would say even riskier than that previous scenario because you have so many parties that, that could impact the, the case. Uh, bridging would be if you're with Company A, uh, you move to Company B upon the filing of the new H-1B petition. And then while that petition with Company B is still pending, Company C files another change of employer petition, and then you start working for them. So you have the only approval, you, you know, is Company A's petition, and then you have two pending petitions, which don't directly confer status, but merely put you in a period of authorized stay. Um, Now, Company B's pending case would bridge Company A's to Company C's. So if Company B's petition is denied, or now that you've left Company B, what do they need it for? They withdraw it, possibly. Um, you're left with a gap between A and C. And so C's petition maybe gets approved, but likely it's going to be for consular processing and there's going to be travel involved. Uh, you know, so for an employer, again, this comes down to disruption of employment. Um, denials can you know, force the employee to have to leave the country, um, may have to refile, things of that nature. And what is the risk if the beneficiary's I-94 card mm-hmm. has expired, even with company A in this example? Mm-hmm. Right. So this could be an even more dangerous situation for the employee because they could potentially be accruing unlawful presence um, based on the scenario, either back to the end of the I-94 card or at the time of denial. Um, and if somebody accrues, a hundred, accrues 180 days of unlawful presence, they're going to trigger a three-year bar if they, once they depart the country and a 10-year bar if they accrue one year of unlawful presence. And, and while that affects the employee with the three-year and 10-year bar and the accrual of unlawful presence, since this conference is primarily, this teleconference primarily for employers, from an employer's point of view, it could be it could result in the employer being considered to have have provided unauthorized mm-hmm. employment to uh, a worker that is not legally allowed exactly. to remain in the United States and work exactly. for that employer because the uh, person's not validly authorized and really AC21 provisions of portability portability right. provisions no longer apply in such a case. Correct. Correct. What's the uh, best practice then in that case? Uh, Alyssa, for the the employer to do? The best practice really is to to use premium processing in these situations to get the approval as quickly as possible. Uh, It would be to, if you need the employee to start urgently, 
Uh, you file with premium processing, wait for the approval. Uh, premium processing is an additional expense, but when you think about the possible risks, risks in terms of engaged in unauthorized employment, disruption to, to the company's business, um, it may be a very good investment. And premium processing will take action on your case within 15 calendar days. If there's an RFE issued, again, once you respond, it's another 15 days. Uh, and, and something else to consider if maybe time wasn't urgent initially but has become urgent, upgrade it to premium processing. Once they've ex- transferred the case to premium processing, you're on that 15-day clock again. Because then you're much safer mm-hmm. with having the actual approval in your hand. Now, I know a lot of times I get the question on my consultations saying, Miss Murthy, what should I do? Um, You know, I've my company is shut down or it's sold or I got laid off, I got terminated, um, whatever, what have you. And now I had the I-140 approval with that employer, but now a different, completely different employer is ready to offer me H-1B employment. Can I take advantage and get it because I've used up my full six years on H-1B status? Kevin, what's the take on that? Yeah, I I get that question a lot too, Sheila, where um, a a lot of employees, I think, don't realize that they're able to use the uh, the green card case with a, with company A in order to get a seventh or an eighth or a twelfth year extension on H one B status with company B or C or D, so uh, you know this is totally a viable option. You can definitely get into H one B status as long as the green card case, as Alyssa had mentioned, is you know where it needs to be in terms of getting that extension, either the three hundred and sixty five day rule or having a pending. Um, uh, I'm sorry, having an approved and I one forty with a non current priority date. So timing for that H-1B filing is is critical, and it requires some coordination on on the H-1B employer's side, but maybe they don't have all the information about the green card case filed for that worker, you know, by another company. Uh, The timing of that H-1B filing is critical, um, and the basis for the extension has to remain valid, not only at the time of the filing of the H-1B extension, but also at the adjudication. So, for example, let's say an I-140, a permanent I-140 is filed for an employee, the I-140 is approved, the priority date is not current, that I-140 approval in hand is a basis for getting a three-year extension even if the person has already used up, you know, six uh, years of H-1B time. But let's say they file the H-1B petition asking for three years of time even though I've already used up all six years and it's based on that old green card case. If that I-140 is revoked um, or, uh, or, or even withdrawn by the prior company before this H-1B petition is adjudicated, there's no basis to ask for more H-1B time. So, um, And that's one of the reasons Alyssa suggested the premium processing exactly. in such cases, because once you get the approval, the next day if the I-140 is denied or revoked, you're safe. Your three-year H-1 remains valid. On the other hand, if you get the RFE and the other employer is already revoked, Guess what? You're going to have to pack up and leave. Your empl- you lose your valuable employee as an employer. 100%, Sheila. There's a race to, you know, it's uh, who's going to get to the line first, the finish line first. Is it going to be the H-1B petition getting adjudicated or is it going to be that withdrawal of the I-140? And if it's the first thing, then we're in great shape. If it's that I-140 that gets uh, withdrawn or revoked prior to the adjudication of that H-1B, it's a problem. 
Okay, since we're very mindful of the time with all of our con teleconference calls and teleconferences for employers, and I know we try to keep it between 30 and 40 minutes, and we're just past the 30-minute mark, a few minutes past, let's, Kevin, let's try to wrap up, summarize, and take away points from the employer's perspective. Uh, for, for the green card, Alyssa, in a, 30 seconds or a minute, the H-1B from the employer's point of view for the H-1B process, and then we'll try to wrap up in the next three, four minutes. Yeah, I think my just, uh, you know, last point here is that, you know, employers are faced with lots of options and, and potentially obstacles when dealing with AC21 law. And I think an employer who, uh, you know, the savvy employer will embrace AC21 and, you know, really exploit the benefits of AC21 while also being mindful about the nuances that could potentially, you know, create some some landmines. You know, we've provided some examples today, uh, but, you know, a company's bottom line is a company's ability to hire, you know, potentially very talented foreign national for work without having to do a green card case is very, you know, it's convenient, uh, um, it's cost effective. And, you know, if you know these these nuances, I think it'll put the company, uh, your companies into a much more competitive position. Thank you, Kevin. Alyssa, any takeaway point? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what, you know, what we've gone over just shows that, you know, employers have options now and there's more flexibility for them in terms of, you know, their employment of foreign nationals. Uh, however, Really, really, it's very important to maintain that H-1B for an employer. Yes, it's an additional cost, but it, it may, you know, preclude if you if done the right way, you may avoid engaging in unauthorized employment. Um, and if maintained properly, uh, could avoid disruption in business if a 485 is denied. So it's really uh, take advantage of the AC-21 and keep the employees in H-1B is the best thing to do. And as you've just heard Kevin and Alyssa speak, the multi-law firm can certainly help guide you, your company, your employees with any AC-21 related issues, whether it's in the H-1B context or in the green card context. There are many uh, complex, subtle issues that need to be understood and appreciated. Um, it's We've talked about having a backup H-1B status just to keep the employer and the employee extra safe depending on the value of the employee to the organization, uh, because even though it can be l fairly expensive to keep filing H-1 extensions, though you do save some of the training fees and not having to pay the fraud fee after the second time, uh, it still may make business sense from a purely business perspective. It may result in savings for you as a company, though, of course, as an employer, you have to be cost and time sensitive uh, to all of these issues. On behalf of Alyssa Klein, Kevin Andrews, myself, and the entire multi-law firm team, we are so honored to have you join us and make time in your valuable day for us. We sure look forward to helping you. Have a great day.